Good morning. How's everybody doing? Y'all ready to get in the Word? We're going to be in Colossians this morning in chapter 4. We are, we are working our way through this letter once a month. When I'm up here and Pastor Jeremy, well, just finished up First Thessalonians. And did you tell him what you're going to be doing next? So should we like not tell him so it's like a surprise, keep him in suspense? I don't want to, I don't want to steal your thunder. So we're going, to, we're going to be in a different book next week. We're going to start a new book. Jeremy's going to take us through it. But our uh, text this morning in Colossians is chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Just a few verses. And while you're turning there, just as uh, situate ourselves in the letter, we're getting towards the end. And the section we're in, along with verses 5 through 6, so basically two, verses 2 through 6, make up the last of Paul's exhortations to the Colossian Christians, after which he closes out his letter to them with some final greetings and instructions, which are given in verses 7 through 18. So this is really the last of his exhortations to the church at Colossae. And here's a recap of what Paul had written to the church up to this point in order to kind of summarize what we've covered so far, what Paul's instruction has been so far. In chapter 1, he expressed his gratitude to God for the Colossians' salvation through faith in Christ and his prayer that they would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. He then taught them the universal supremacy of Christ and explained that the goal of his apostolic ministry was for them to be completely mature in Christ. It's a very Christ-centered letter. You'll see that. It's good. It's, uh, it's fitting. It's fitting background music here. This is the recap music. Or the chapter one recap music. Chapter two doesn't get any. Then, in chapter two, buckle in your seatbelts. Paul began to give the Colossians a series of exhortations as to how they were to press on towards maturity in Christ. That was his goal, and then he's given them exhortations as to how they're to do that, to mature in Christ. He urged them to keep walking in Christ, and then he spent the rest of the chapter, rest of chapter 2, warning them not to buy into the philosophy of those who taught that you need to supplement your faith in Christ with religious rituals and regulations and mystical experiences in order to be more spiritually mature and devoted to God. He said, don't listen to people who tell you that. Paul directed the Colossians then in chapter 3 towards true spirituality, true devotion to God, which is, if we can sum it up in a phrase, it's Christ-centered living. That is true spirituality. That is true, devotion to God, Christ-centered living. Paul exhorted them to put off earthliness and to put on Christ-likeness, the virtues of Christ. He exhorted them to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, and to do everything in Jesus' name. He then exhorted them towards Christ-centered living in the context of their homes and the household where the bulk of their personal lives were lived out. Same is true of us. 
And at this point, he focused his attention on specific groups of people who together made up the social fabric of the first century household. Wives and husbands, children and parents and slaves and masters. And we had finished that section last time, the household code. And that brings us now to verse 2 of chapter 4, where Paul begins to give his final exhortations to the entire congregation. So again, he narrowed in, focused in on wives and husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters. And now he's stepping back and speaking to the whole congregation with some final exhortations. Having given them much instruction on how they are to live in a manner worthy of Christ, who is Lord over all, here is what he calls all of them to do. Here's his final word to them, his final exhortations. Verse 2. And again, we'll get to the other exhortations in verses 5 through 6 next time. But verse 2. He begins with this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the subject introduced is prayer, and the command given is to continue steadfastly in it. In other words, to persevere in it, persevere in prayer. Paul was not simply saying here, well, don't forget to pray. Told you a lot of stuff. Don't forget to pray. Just say your prayers. Wasn't an afterthought, right? It is a it is a, a concluding thought. If you can maybe sense the difference there, there's a weightiness to it for saving it till the end to speak to all of them. Persevere in prayer. He wasn't saying simply don't forget to pray. He was calling them to lead a prayerful life. Lead a prayerful life. They were to be, as we are, a praying people. Not just praying occasionally, but habitually and persistently. Be a praying people. In other words, the Christian life, we say, should be bathed in prayer. Your Christian life should be bathed in prayer. It's quite fitting that this would be one of the final exhortations in Paul's letter because after receiving much instruction on how to live in a manner worthy of Christ and then to press on towards maturity in him, we must remember that apart from him, we can do nothing. If we are to live according to his will, as it has in the previous chapters been made very clear to us, we saw his will for us, Christ-centered living. We saw what that looks like. Here's his will for us. It's in his word. If we are to live according to his will, then we must be praying for his grace and mercy along the way, because we are not self-sufficient. You don't live the Christian life in the strength of your own flesh. We are dependent upon Christ Jesus, our Lord, who Paul said is our life. He is your life. So we must not fail to turn to him in prayer. Also, in light of the fact that he indeed is Lord of all creation, and, and through him the Father will reconcile all things to himself, as was clearly taught in chapter 1, then we ought to be continually praying for the furtherance of his work and for the advancement of his kingdom, which will endure forever, unlike this present world. So what are the things you pray for? I mean, oftentimes it might be focused on our own 
personal lives, our own circumstances, our own happiness, our own possessions, our own work, which is fine. We should be taking everything to the Lord in prayer, but his kingdom is the priority. He is working in and through everything to bring things about to the establishment of his kingdom. And we've been made a part of that, been made citizens of his kingdom. So our prayer should be geared towards his interests, his kingdom, his righteousness, his glory. So beyond the call to persevere in prayer, Paul described the manner in which we are to pray in this verse. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says, being what? Watchful in it. Being watchful in it. Literally, staying awake in it. But Paul doesn't mean here, don't fall asleep when you pray. Don't do that. So as soon as you fall asleep, you're not praying. Kind of feeds purpose. Stay awake. And I would say, obviously, that would go without saying. Try not to fall asleep when you pray. If you're trying to commune with the Lord, maybe late at night after you've had a heavy meal and uh, maybe some dessert and a sugar crash, and then you've gone, worked really hard all day, and then you're lying in bed, and you're like, now I shall, I shall pray to the Lord. <laughs> we know how that goes, right? Anyway, but if it works for you, awesome. So that goes without saying, though. But what, what is he saying? Being watchful in it. Staying awake in it. Well, he's, he's figuratively referring to spiritual alertness. This is similar to the charge, to his charge, Paul's charge, to the Thessalonian Christians, which we covered not too long ago. And Pastor Jeremy took us through that passage. Well, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 5 through 8, here's what Paul told them. For you are all, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. He's, he's speaking figuratively here. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, you who are in Christ are no longer in the realm of spiritual darkness, Spiritually dead in your sins, apathetic to the will of God. If you are in Christ, you've been saved by the grace of God and you now reside in the realm of spiritual light because God has made you spiritually alive in Christ. And so you ought to live as one who is spiritually awake and mindful of and submissive to the will of God for you. Here in Colossians, Paul is specifically pointing to the importance of spiritual alertness to leading an active and effective prayer life. So it's not just the mere activity, I prayed, checked the box, I, I went through the motions. No, he's, he's calling you to intentional, active, effective prayer. You've got to persevere in it and for it to be active and effective, you've got to be watchful in it. You've got to be spiritually on the alert. So think about it. If you're being watchful, if you're being watchful, then you're being attentive to your surroundings and thus are aware of what's going on. 
Watchfulness or alertness is essential to effectively carrying out many different kinds of tasks or responsibilities. For instance, if a security guard is tasked with guarding an entrance to a building, then it is essential for him to be watchful in order to prevent any breaches of security via that entrance, right? If he's not watchful, then his guarding will be weak and ineffective. Likewise, if we are not spiritually watchful, then our praying will be weak and ineffective. Our prayers, if we are not spiritually watchful, will be superficial, self-focused, short-sighted, and so on. And our praying will be minimal because we won't be mindful of the will of God and attentive to the need of the world and alert to the spiritual dangers within it. You see, so not only is a lack of spiritual alertness, a lack of watchfulness, going to make your prayers superficial or shallow or weak, but also leads you to pray less because you won't be seeing the world as God sees it and therefore the need to come before him, to ask things of him, ask him to work and align yourself with his will. So what then was Paul's exhortation? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. If we're to be spiritually alert and watchful in prayer, then then we must be doing what Paul said back at the beginning of chapter 3, where he began instructing the Colossians on Christ-centered living. He'd given them the warnings about false teaching, but then he began his instructions on Christ-centered living. And what did he say? His first exhortations as to how they were to keep walking in Christ were as follows. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What do you find yourself setting your mind on? Are you setting it on things above? Because I'll tell you what, we are being pulled, our attention is being pulled away, more likely down, to focus on the cares and anxieties of this present life. Everything is an emergency. Everything is the end of the world. Everything's the apocalypse. When really it isn't. God's purposes are eternal. We should be focused on on an eternal perspective. We should maintain an eternal perspective. So if you're being watchful in prayer, then you you must actively be putting your earthly life in heavenly perspective. You've got to see your life that way. You've got to view your life from a heavenly perspective. That's what Paul was getting at at the beginning of chapter 3. If your mind is consumed with either love for or anxiety over the things of this world, which is passing away, then you are not being watchful. You either love the world too much or you're freaking out over it too much. You're not being spiritually alert. You're distracted. Spiritually speaking, your senses are dulled then. Your judgment is impaired. Your thinking is clouded. You're not seeing clearly. Your mind must be aligned with Christ, who is exalted in heaven and who has been granted authority over all things. Your mind must be aligned with his. Your thoughts 
must be centered on Christ, whose kingdom will be established upon the earth and will endure forever. Your heart must be lifted up towards Christ, who is your Lord and Savior, your King, your Advocate, your sympathetic High Priest, and the Shepherd of your soul. Your heart must be lifted up to Him. So how do we cultivate this kind of Christ-centered, heavenly-mindedness? How do we cultivate that so that we can be spiritually alert, watchful? Well, let's consider what Paul said earlier in his letter. Back in chapter 1, we read that his prayer for the Colossians was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That was his prayer for them, that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he exhorted them in chapter 3, By what means can they do that? He exhorted them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if we are to be spiritually alert and watchful in prayer, well, then our minds need to be informed and continually renewed by God's word in order that we might be conformed, our thoughts might be conformed to his will. God's word will train our minds towards spiritual alertness so that we may indeed be watchful in prayer. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. What will enable you to be spiritually alert? What will get you towards being watchful? What will train your mind towards that? You don't, you don't muster that up. You don't all of a sudden become, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more spiritually alert. I'm going to make myself more spiritually alert. Your mind needs substance from the word of God. To, to work off of, to actually see clearly. So we allow our minds to be renewed by his word, and then we can be spiritually watchful. We truly will be. And then notice at the end of verse 2 that Paul addresses not only the manner in which we are to pray, being watchful, but also the attitude with which we are to pray. He says what? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. When we present our request to God, we are doing so as those who have, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, been brought from darkness to life, or darkness to light, from, from death to everlasting life, who have been forgiven of all our sins, who have been granted citizenship and, etern- and an eternal inheritance in Christ's coming kingdom. We have every reason to give thanks to God. There's no shortage of reasons to give thanks to God. And Scripture says every good and perfect gift comes from him. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from him. So when we pray, we ought to thank him for what he has already done and what he is doing. And this serves as a constant reminder to us that he is indeed working all things to a good and glorious end. Because again, think about it. If you think of All the reasons you have to be thankful to God for what he has done and what he's doing, it reminds you that he indeed is working. Hindsight's 20-20. We can see that he's working, so we know he is. And that gives us an encouragement that he is working according to his good and perfect will. All of our reasons to be thankful to God are also reasons then to persevere in prayer. Because they continually remind us that the 
our Father in heaven cares for us, and that our prayers to him are therefore not in vain. He's not weak and incapable of doing the things we ask. And again, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. So, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now in the next two verses, we see that after Paul exhorted the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer, he then asks that they pray for him. Immediate application. Here's a prayer. Pray this. He says, pray for us, which would include at least Timothy, who we mentioned at the beginning of the letter, and likely the rest of his companions who are with him and assisting him in the ministry of the gospel, and they are included in the final greetings that follow this passage in verses 7 through 14. So he says, pray for us. So let's read it, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Well, I would say this prayer request by itself is instructive. Who did it come from? came from the Apostle Paul, a man who had been miraculously commissioned by Christ himself and had been empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders and mighty works, the signs of a true Apostle of Christ. As indicated by the first person pronouns in verse 4, this is very much a personal require, uh, prayer request for him. He's not saying, well, Pray for, pray for the guys who are with me. They're not apostles. They need some help. Um, I'm good. Apostle Paul, commissioned by Christ, work miracles by the power of the Spirit as a true apostle. He didn't say that. It gets personal in verse 4. So we see he is asking for prayer for himself. And the fact that he, of, of all people, was personally requesting prayer testifies to the importance and effectiveness of prayer. Paul thought he needed it. He desired their prayers on his behalf because he, he knew and believed that their prayers would truly be a help to him and his companions. Also, this prayer request is instructive in that it provides us with a clear example of what praying according to God's will looks like. I mean, there's many things we can, we can be praying about, but this certainly shows us one thing we ought to be, the kind of things we should be praying about. He said that God would open a door for the word. What was Paul's desire? What was he requesting prayer for? Verse 3, that God would open to him and his fellow workers a door, which is a door of opportunity. We say that even now. God would open a door of opportunity for us. That, that, they, that God would open a door to them for what? For the word. So that they may declare the mystery of Christ. Mind you, He's in prison. He's confined. It would be you know, helpful if a door was just open for him to walk out of there. But that's not his priority. He knows that he's there for a reason. God has him where he wants him. And he's got a mission that he's been given. So he's, his prayer is that God will open a door for the word where he's at. To declare the mystery of Christ. 
That is, more specifically, the mystery which is Christ. In other words, Paul desired the opportunity to declare God's message of salvation through the person and work of Christ. In other words, the gospel. The gospel. To proclaim the gospel is to proclaim Christ. And what does Paul refer to, or why does he refer to this as a mystery? Why does he say that? What does that mean? A mystery. The mystery which is Christ. Well, back in chapter 1, verse 26, Paul referred to the word of God entrusted to him as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And this tells us what the term mystery referred to as Paul used it. It was an aspect of God's plan that God had kept hidden up until that present time. It was newly revealed truth from God. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said, The mystery was Christ in you, the hope of glory, which speaks of God's revelation that Christ not only grants forgiveness of sins and reconciles to God those who believe in him, but that he also, through the Spirit, lives within believers. And he secures their hope of eternal glory. That is something God had made known. And through faith in Jesus, who is Israel's promised Messiah, believing Jews and Gentiles have the life of Christ reigning within them. And a few verses later, in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul used the term mystery in a broader sense to refer to Christ himself. That is, the fullness of the reality of salvation through faith in him. So again, God had revealed that there would be a coming one. The Messiah would come. He revealed that in the Old Testament. But he only revealed so much about this one. And then he came. His name is Jesus. And God made fully disclosed his plan and purposes through the Messiah, the Christ. So now... He is a mystery, but now revealed. So when we proclaim Christ, we are proclaiming that which once was a mystery, but now we are proclaiming the fullness of the reality of salvation through faith in him. And this is what Paul wanted the opportunity to declare. And he knew that God must create the circumstances in which his word would be able to go forth from Paul and his companions and do its work. He knew that God had to create the circumstances for his word to do that. They were ready to preach the gospel, right? I mean, they had mouths. It's like, you know, do you need prayer for that? I mean, you can speak the gospel, right? But guess what? He wants the opportunity to proclaim it to people who need to hear it. You can't make that happen. And again, just because you go and preach the gospel to this flower pot over here, you're not really fulfilling the you know, call to proclaim the gospel in the way that God's called you to do it. And even if you went to a crowd of people and you tried shouting over them and tried to proclaim the gospel, if they're not listening, the door's not open. So we realize that even in the proclamation of the gospel, part of, you know, this is all in the sovereign working of God. He arranges those. He, he creates those circumstances in which his word will be heard and will take root. So Paul wanted God to open that door for them, to create the circumstances They were ready to preach, but they first needed an audience to preach to. 
They needed contact with people who would at least listen to their message, and they knew that it is God who arranges those encounters by means of his providence. And they also knew that, Lord willing, among those who listened to their message would be those whom God had appointed beforehand to believe the truth and be granted forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Christ. So Paul's prayer request was that God would bring about these circumstances in which his word would indeed go forth and do its work through their preaching. Now notice what Paul says next. He told the Colossians that it was on account of the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel, it was on account of the mystery of Christ that he was at that time where? In prison. In prison. The phrase in prison can be misleading because we typically associate that term with jail or the penitentiary. However, in Paul's case, he was, he was under house arrest in Rome. A little different circumstances than what we might think of when we hear the word prison. But he was, he was under house arrest in Rome, confined to his own rented quarters under Roman guard. And most likely, he was chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. I mean, he is a prisoner, but his circumstances were not as, as harsh as they could have been. He was in custody. And in these circumstances, he was bound, which is what the word he used, the word translated as in prison, literally means. So, the sake of the gospel for which I am bound. I'm bound, I'm confined. Now, Paul said he was presently bound for the sake of the mystery of Christ. And in the book of Acts, from chapters 21 through 28, we have an account of how he ended up in those circumstances. He had gone to Jerusalem to continue to advance the cause of the gospel. And it happened that while he was in the temple, he was seized by Jews who had come from the regions where he had ministered, and they knew him, they knew of him, and they seized him, and they made false accusations against him that included or that incited a mob to violently drag him out and to try to kill him. At which point, the Roman soldiers who policed the area intervened and took him into custody. And while detained, Paul had opportunities to give his testimony to the Jewish people. He had the, the audience then. He was permitted to speak. And later he was given an audience before the council, the leaders of the Jews. He had this opportunity, the opportunities to give testimony. And then according to what we read in Acts 23, verse 11, it says, after he gave bore witness, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, due to an assassination plot by the Jews, the Roman commander responsible for Paul sent him under guard to the governor in Caesarea, so another city outside of Jerusalem, where he remained in custody for two years, still confined. And when an attempt was made to move him back to Jerusalem for another hearing, which would expose him to another assassination plot, see how popular he was? He appealed his case to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen. He knew that he had done nothing to violate the law. He appealed to Caesar. And he was sent to Rome, where he continued to be held in custody until his case would be presented in the emperor's court. That brings us to where he is when he's writing this letter. And here's what we read in, in Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 16. And when he came into Rome, finally arrived there, 
Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And fast forward and skip over to verse 21. And their response to him was, we've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, the way, Christianity, with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So he has an audience. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have grown, or, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will lessen. Oh, no, he didn't. Did you just mention that God's going to save Gentiles? That was something that really stirred them up. So it says they all departed, had the audience, now they're gone. So where did that leave Paul? Under house arrest, confined, unable himself to go to the people throughout Rome to preach the gospel. He's unable to. Eventually he would have an audience and an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel when his case was heard in Caesar's court. But who knew how long it would be before that happened? Now, the Lord already revealed to him, I'm sending you to Rome. You're going to testify in this way, you know, bear witness of me. So we know where, what the end is. The Lord's will has been revealed. But how long is that going to be? And in the meantime, he's stuck in, this, in his quarters, confined. Well, he was determined that even his time in custody should not be wasted. And that brings us to his prayer request in his letter to the Colossians, which he, he most likely wrote not too long after his arrival in Rome. What is he praying for then? Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That's his prayer request. Paul was confined, so he was essentially asking that God would bring him receptive people to preach the gospel to. He can't go to them. May God open a door for the word that we, they might come to us, that we might minister to them. And in verse 4, we read the continuation of his prayer request. He says, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Literally, he says, in order that I may make it known as it is necessary for me to speak. Paul's divine commission as an apostle was to proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles and to make known to them the mystery of Christ. This was his divine calling. This was his responsibility, which is why he said, as it is necessary for me to speak, this is my commission. This is my responsibility. This is my calling. Pray that I may make it known. 
In verse 3, Paul's request was for the opportunity to preach the gospel to people. But in verse 4, his request was that his preaching would be effective. That he would explain the gospel with clarity in order, that, in order to make it known to those who listened. So how did things turn out? How did things turn out for Paul? Well, he exhorted the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer and then solicited their help, asking them to pray on his behalf that God would basically give him opportunities to preach the gospel of Christ and enable him to preach it effectively while he was confined to his quarters in Rome. Here's what happened. Luke gave the following account in Acts chapter 28, the very end of it. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then according to his letter to the Philippians, which he wrote towards the end of his time in custody, the end of this two-year period, and that's indicated by his expectation in the letter that, that he would soon be released. What does he write in that letter? He had this news to share to them. He wrote to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So people see he's not a criminal and they're hearing the gospel. He's, explaining, he's preaching the gospel to them. It's being made known to them. The whole imperial guard. Obviously a soldier chained to him. Captive audience right there. Certainly they rotated, so he worked his way through them that way, but certainly they probably were told of the things they heard. But you see, and then in verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only through Paul, but also that is inspiring, motivating other Christians to be proclaiming the gospel in Rome. So though Paul was confined, we see the gospel advanced nonetheless through his ministry. How? How did that happen? Well, because the saints of God were praying. That's why. We don't want to miss that. Because again, we could read that and say, oh, see, God opened the door. God's working. He's working his purposes. But notice what Paul asked for in this letter. What did he asked for? He wanted other Christians to be praying that God would do these things. So how did the gospel advance? Certainly because God opened the door. Why did he open the door? Because his people were praying that he would. They were praying in accordance with his will, that he would open to Paul and his fellow workers a door for his word, and he did just that. Does that not encourage you to give yourself to prayer? You see the effectiveness of the people of God praying for his work to be done? And guess what? Our prayers can be just as effective. Just as effective if only we would just ask. And ask with right motives and in accordance with the Lord's will. Do you even ask for God to move, for him to work? Apostle John wrote, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request 
that we asked of him. Not only does he hear, but he will grant those requests that are asked according to his will. So what then ought you to do? What is the exhortation? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Be a praying man. Be a man of prayer. Be a woman of prayer. And we ought to be a praying people. This church ought to be a praying people so that we can see glorious, gracious work of God here in our local community, where we're at, that he might work through us, that we might be instruments of redemption in his hands, that he might work through us effectively. So we need to ask him. And aside from that, we've seen in this letter how he's called us to live. We need to be asking him, Lord, help. Help me to do these things. Help me to obey your will, to walk in your ways, that you might be glorified by my life. We need him. We are dependent upon him. We should take everything to him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we, we thank you that we know that as we come before you, thanks to your son reconciling us to you by his death, burial, and resurrection, we can come to you in faith, and you hear us when we call out to you. We pray that you would help us to become more and more a praying people. That we would, we would not neglect to take everything to you in prayer. And that we would seek to align our, ourselves with your will through your word. That what we may ask, that ask of you would be in accordance with your will. We pray that you'd help us overcome the, the weakness of our own flesh the distractions of this world, that we might indeed be heavenly-minded people and constantly coming before you and, and, and aligning ourselves with you and asking you to do your work in us, through us, and in this world for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.